All right, time to invite the kids to come on up front and have a seat. Come on up. Feel free to bring somebody along with you if you'd like. I was asked this morning if I'd ever do a message for old people. Any old people who want to join us, come on up. All right, come on up, find a spot to sit. All right, good to see everybody. Come on up, come on up, there's more room. Come on up, find a spot to sit. All right, I have something to show you this morning. Are you ready? Who knows what this is? A baseball bat. What is it used for? Hitting baseballs. Yeah, you guys are smart. Good. Anybody watching the, well, I should say watched? Anybody watch the Brewers in the playoffs? Yeah? Yeah, last night didn't go so well, did it? Yeah, bummer. Um, who's your favorite player? Christian Yelich. Christian Yelich. He's the favorite? Josh Hader. Yeah, good. Awesome. Lots of good ones. Okay, so let's say this is Christian Yelich's bat. All right? And let's say he loans you his bat. He gives it to you to use for a while. That'd be pretty cool to have. Wouldn't you like to have Christian Yelich's bat? Awesome. That's where they make them, right? Yeah, sweet. So let's say it's, this is Christian Yelich's bat, and he loans it to you for a while to use. Okay, what would you use it for, do you think? To hit baseballs, right? That's what it's, that's what it's used for. Because, and because this is Christian Yelich's bat that he's loaned you, it would be best to use this for something that would probably be something that he would want you to use it for, right? But what if you used this bat, you used his bat in a different way? What if you used his bat to hammer down nails? Or what if you used his bat to chop down trees? Or what if you used his bat to hurt other people? Do you think if you did that, that Christian Yelich would be pleased with how you were, how you were using his bat that he let you borrow? Probably not, right? He, he probably wouldn't like that very much. So you wouldn't use his bat. If, if Christian Yelich loaned you his bat, you wouldn't use it for those things, right? You'd use it for what it was designed for, right? You'd use his bat for good according to the purpose for that it was made and in ways that would, he wouldn't be disappointed in you, right? So that's similar to how God sees you, and more specifically, how he sees the body that he's given you. Raise your hand if you have a body. All right, all of us do, right? Of course, we all have a body. Now, we read in 1 Corinthians, we read that you are not your own. You are not your own. You know what? You belong to God, and your body is part of Jesus Christ, part of God, yeah. And God is pleased when you use your body that he's given you in ways that would honor him. Because we can use our body for sin, right? Would it be good for us to use our bodies for sin, the bodies that God has given us? We could use our hands to hurt other people, right? We could use our mouths to say mean things against other people. Should we do that? Is that how we should use the bodies God has given us? No, never, right? We should never do that. Romans chapter 6, verse 12 says, let us not, says, let not sin reign or rule or have control in your body. We're not to have, let our bodies sin in those ways, right? You're to use your body for how it was meant, for how it was 
purpose for how God designed it. So we're to keep our bodies pure and holy and use them for God's glory and for good. So similar to how Christian Yelich would probably want you to use his bat in the right way for good, not for evil, right? God wants you to use your body in a way that would honor and glorify him, not for sin, but for good and for his honor and your glory. All right? So keep that in mind as you go. All right? Thanks for coming up. You can go back and have a seat. Thank you, Pastor Jeff, for ripping the Band-Aid off really well, reminding us of the Brewers. If you don't know, they lost Game 7 last night. All right, uh, we're in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. I also uh, want to remind you, at, uh, later on in the service, after the closing song, we'll have the special offering for Lemuel. In years past, we've sent two groups down a year for English camp, and now they've hired a full-time English teacher, so we don't need to send an English camp this fall, and instead we're going to send an offering to help them out financially. That'll happen after the closing song. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 to 20. Um, this text is heavy-hitting as Corinthians is, and it does something I think is really good. In the space of nine verses, it hits on three major issues. The body, what we're supposed to do with our bodies. Hits on food, and it hits on sex. Uh, and so those are three major issues in your life. And then it's going to apply the gospel to them, apply the resurrection of the dead to it, and apply the relationship of the Trinity to those things. I just want to say right at the front, I think the, the Bible is amazing. In the space of nine verses, it's going to provide a world of teaching on things that are utterly useful to you and that you use every day of your life and apply deep theological truth to them practically. Uh, and so I hope that this is good for you in that way. Second, uh, one of the issues that Christianity has wrestled with an error is to reduce the importance of physical things because we too much overemphasize spiritual. That is, we think Christianity is mainly about spiritual things. And it is, of course, about spiritual things. But uh, biblical Christianity doesn't reduce the body. It doesn't neglect the physical. Uh, and this text should help us in that error. That is, what you do with your body matters. And we'll, we'll see that in a moment. And so this is very practical, and I hope uh, God give you uh, attention to it. Let's, let's read these verses. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. 
Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are all your rules. You have appointed your testimonies in all righteousness and faithfulness. May zeal for your holy word consume us. May we love all your promises, and may your spirit teach us to never forget your precepts. Please give us understanding so that we may live. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, If you remember, chapter 4 began a new section in the letter of Corinthians. In this section, which continues on for some time, one of the major topics, one of the major themes is sexual immorality. Uh, We began in chapter 5 with a man in incest. Paul then teaches us that we need to judge sexual morality within the church. At the uh, middle of chapter 6 from last week's sermon, we had this list of sins, many of which dealt with sexual immorality. And so Paul is going to continue on in this. He's going to continue on in the the rest of chapter 6 and into chapter 7 going into marriage. Um, And Paul does so by first uh, teaching on the body. He goes to an issue that uh, isn't as vital but is important um, in relation to the body, food, and then uses that to go into something that uh, when the body is misused has has much more grave consequences, sexual morality. And so he's going to teach on sexual morality around this issue of the body. All right. So he's going to say, we aren't free as Christians for sexual morality, but we are free as Christians in regards to food. And so let's start with that. Let's start with food. Now, you guys know, if you've been here at all, that this isn't a topic that I like to have fun with. Uh, I, I try to poke fun of people who are snobs in regards to food or poke fun of people who can only eat grass-fed, free-range, whatever. Um, and so I'm not going to poke fun of people today on it, try not to. I just want to teach on it, if I can. Just, just some straight biblical teaching. When Christ came to earth, when he came uh, and he died and he rose, one of the great gifts that we receive as Christians is freedom. We become incredibly free. One of the freedoms that Christ purchased for us is freedoms from the Old Covenant ceremonial laws regarding food. Okay? We went back to an Eden kind of freedom. If you remember in the beginning of the Bible, God created everything. And as God was creating it, He punctuated each day with, and it was good. And at the end, after he created humanity, and it was very good. And then in Genesis 2, he set man in the garden, and he said, Behold, everything that I've created here, all of these uh, plants and all this food is good for you. Just go ahead and eat, but don't eat of one thing. Right? A little later on, he also included meat in that. Now, uh, after sin, after the fall, God planned our redemption, and he planned it by 
creating a unique people and nation, Israel. And the purpose of Israel was out of which to bring a Savior. But Israel was a nation, a geopolitical nation. And God legislated them very carefully. And one of the legislations was regarding food. There were foods that were clean and there was foods that were unclean. And uh, that had a greater purpose than food. But all that to say, uh, there, there were legislations after Eden restricting what could be eaten and drunk. Now, when Christ came, uh, we, we got freedom from that legislation. For instance, if you turn with me to Mark chapter 7, verse 19. I'm giving you some background here before we get back into Corinthians. In Mark chapter 7, verse 19... Or starting in verse 18, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Now he's talking to them in regarding food. He's talking to the Israelite religious leaders regarding food because they were uh, tisking people who would do something that would make them unclean. And they said, Are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. Now, we're not going to get into that. And then we have this little uh, editorial explanation in parentheses afterwards. Thus he declared all foods clean. This is radical. This is absolutely crazy. Why? Well, one, because Jesus is declaring that he's God. He gets to decide what's legal and what's not. He gets to decide what's right and what's wrong. But secondly, he is saying that the old covenant time has ended, the new covenant is instituted, and in this new covenant is freedom. Everything is clean. And if you flip over to Acts 10, you see this playing out in the early church. The apostle Peter, himself a Jew, who strictly abided by the ceremonial laws regarding food, uh, was hungry <laughs> one night, and he, we see him in uh, about the ninth hour, in verse 3, he, Peter, saw a vision. I'm sorry, this Cornelius, we're going down a little bit, in verse 9, beginning in verse 9. Peter uh, went up to house tap, he was uh, praying, and in verse 10, he's hungry. He wanted something to eat. Uh, and, and God uh, gave him a vision of heaven opening and a great sheet descending and all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds are on it and the voice from heaven came and said rise Peter kill and eat this would have been unthinkable to Peter to do this and so Peter being the righteous man that he is in verse 14 says by no means Lord for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean then the voice came again in verse 15. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. Right? So what's going on there? Well, God is applying Christ's coming to food. There's, there's no unclean foods anymore. There's nothing that is off limits regarding God's creation of plants and animals and drink for believers. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 3, 
Paul calls it a doctrine of demons, those who advocate from abstaining from certain foods and drinks. <laughs> this teaching becomes so important, this freedom that we have in Christ, that Paul calls it a doctrine of demons to teach Christians that it's more Christian to abstain from certain foods and drinks. And so back to Corinthians, the law for Christians regarding food and drink is everything is lawful. Why? Verse 13. Because of what God created it for. What did God create food for? Your tummy. What did God create your stomach for? Food. So what should you do? You should eat and drink without any issues of conscience. All things are lawful. All things are lawful. All things are lawful for me, Paul says. So one of the things that we as Christians wrongly take it upon ourselves to do is think it's more spiritual to go above the scriptural command. That is, we all know it's not right to go below. We all know that it's not right to uh, fall short of God's standards. But sometimes we convince ourselves that it's more spiritual to, to go beyond. Right? God says all food is lawful, but we think, well, it's more spiritual for me not to drink alcohol. Or it's more spiritual for me not to eat crabs or something. I don't know, whatever you come up with. It's more spiritual for me to eat organic. And you are taking it upon yourself to be more spiritual than Jesus Christ. And so Paul here declares all things lawful. Now, immediately after doing this, you see in verse 12, he actually does give two restrictions. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. There's the first. All things are lawful, but I will not be dominated. I will not be mastered. I will not be controlled by anything. Food is meant for the stomach. Stomach is meant for the food. God will destroy both. Eat, drink, and be merry. But there's two restrictions. Now these two restrictions come right from the two great commandments. Love God with all that you are, and love your neighbor as yourself. He just reverses the order here. He deals with love for neighbor first, and not all things are helpful. And he deals with love for God second, and I will not be mastered by anything. Now, I, I think this should be convicting to us. When you read, all things are lawful me, but not all things are helpful, who do you immediately think of there? That is, when he says, not all things are helpful, who do you think not helpful in, re in regards to? Yourself, right? Immediately you think of yourself. That's not talking about you at all. And all things are helpful. He's talking about your brothers and sisters. He's talking about others. It just shows our selfishness, doesn't it? We read scripture through the lens of me. All things are lawful, but not everything's going to be helpful for me. He's not talking about you. He's talking about you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ. 
and that you eating and drinking certain foods will not be helpful to them. And that should restrict your use, love for others. Now we have to be careful here. He's not talking here about somebody who has an issue with a certain food or drink. And because they have an issue that you should not eat or drink of it. You know what I'm talking about here. We're talking about legalists, Pharisees. We're talking about people who think that it's wrong to drink alcohol or it's wrong to eat processed foods or it's whatever. That's not what he's talking about here. He is talking, we don't have time to get into it, he is talking here about brothers and sisters who it is a matter of life or death for in regards to food and drink. So if you invite over a family in the church and you know that the guy that you invited over has a lifelong battle with alcohol, and for him, alcohol is a matter of life and death, it will not be helpful for you to drink alcohol there, and you will restrict your freedom out of Christian love. That's what, he's not talking about prudish Christians who tisk and look down on people who eat processed foods and junk foods and meats or anything. This isn't talking about somebody who just doesn't think we should drink alcohol. You should drink alcohol there. Another way to say it is it might be more helpful for you in that instance to put out alcohol for somebody who has an issue with alcohol who shouldn't have an issue for alcohol. Do you understand what I'm getting at? So the first restriction on our freedom is love for others. We are to love our neighbors ourselves. And where it's a matter of life and death, we should restrict our freedom. The second restriction is love for God. I will not be mastered by anything. If you go to the Ten Commandments, the first few commandments deal with idolatry. You shall have no other gods before you. We know that our wicked human hearts are capable of turning anything into a God. We, we can become controlled by food. It, it can control us like only God should control us. We, you can become controlled by uh, substances, by alcohol. It can become an addictive, controlling substance. And so the second way that a believer will always limit his or her freedom, and we have absolute freedom in regards to food or drink, is if it's controlling us. If it's become a master, if it's consuming us, if it's consuming our minds, if it's consuming our finances, if it's consuming our hearts, we will not let anything control us. So we are free to eat or drink whatever we want, but we will never be dominated by it. And I think as Christians, we can be dominated by, in one or two ways by food and drink. One is glut, gluttony, where we just eat and drink and eat and drink and eat and drink and eat and drink with no self-control at all. The second, and in our age, I don't know if it's greater, but a, a great danger in our age, and it's a greater danger because we don't see it as a danger, is to be so controlled by what we eat and don't eat because of all of the hype of diets and restrictions and chemicals and all of this. 
That is, you spend so much time being consumed about healthy eating that, it, that actually that's mastering you. You're not mastered in the sense that you lack self-control in what you eat. You're mastered in the sense that your conscience has been messed with and that you think it's wrong to eat that which God says it's fine to eat. And this has become a Christian thing. There are tons of Christian books and seminars written on like the Noah diet or whatever that ridiculous stuff is. I mean, Christians are making a lot of money out of duping other Christians by teaching that it's godly to eat like some Old Testament guy. And it's complete rubbish. This one little verse should cause any Christian who goes into a Christian bookstore and steals those books to laugh. Uh, food for the stomach and stomach for the food. So we don't want to be mastered by this Christian age uh, of our teaching on food. Uh, and then, of course, drunkenness. We, we need to say this, especially in our area. Drunkenness is a major problem being controlled by alcohol. Alcohol is a good gift from God. As I've said before, I believe we should use it in the Lord's Supper because that's what Christ did. We'll deal with that years down the road from now. We should enjoy drinking alcohol. You should enjoy it. I think you should raise up your children, showing them the right use of alcohol. Uh, But we will not be mastered by it. Drunkenness is a sin. And so you can take that home with you very easily. Don't destroy someone for the sake of food and drink. But don't ever let anybody put you into bondage over what they think you should eat and drink. You have freedom. Now, in the household, most households, women will have most of the uh, say in what is brought into the house regarding food and drink. And so I want to especially encourage you as women, as you do the shopping, to consider this teaching. You have complete freedom in this, sisters. Be careful over the kind of control you exhibit in your households and the way that the children in your home are being raised up or you might be inadvertently teaching them there are certain things that God restricts when there is no restriction. All right, now Paul moves from this issue of food right into sexual morality by focusing on the body. Verse 13, food is for the stomach, stomach is food, God will destroy them both. Now, that teaching, I I don't know what to do with it in light of the uh, marriage supper of the Lamb to come. Those aren't contradictory, but I'm not sure yet how to mesh those, you know what I'm talking about? Jesus said in the Last Supper when he was drinking wine, I will not drink this again until after the resurrection of the dead. And then we're promised in the book of Revelation this great feast, and feasts usually include food and drink, which would include a mouth and teeth and the digestive system. And I don't know how to do that with God will destroy them both. I think what he's getting at here is in the new heaven on earth, it's going to be very different than what how we deal with food and drink now. But... Either way, what he's saying is, 
How you live in your body as a Christian matters, even in regards to food, but it matters incredibly more in regards to sex and sexual morality. So he's making an argument here from the lesser, your body's important in regards to food, to the greater. And if that's important, this is way more important. Because though food and drink can do some kind of destruction in your lives, and, it, and, it's, and it's somewhat central, nothing is as central to the human as sex and sexuality. Nothing causes so much damage than this issue. So, Paul moves from something that we have absolute freedom in regards to, food, to something that we do not have freedom in regards to, which is sexual immorality. The, the body, where, where the stomach is meant for food, and food for the stomach, the body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord. So Pastor said, how many of you have a body? Okay. Again, the biblical teaching on the body is that your physical body really matters to your discipleship. From your head to your toes, what you do with your body actually really matters before the Lord. Your stomach is meant for food. Praise God. Enjoy it. But your body and its members are not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord. Now, the city that Paul is writing to, Corinth, was uh, the Madison, Wisconsin of its day. It was as sexually debauched uh, a city as there has ever been. Like Sodom had nothing on these people. Uh, San Francisco, that, that's what this place was. If there was a kind of sexual morality, it was there. Uh, and the church uh, was following right along. We've already seen it in chapter 5. They were not only permitting a man to have sex with his father's wife, they were boasting about it. They were boasting of their tolerance. They would have got high marks from the church of the liberal nuts. This would have been a, an inclusive church. And Paul continues on this. How could a church, how could a believer simultaneously think that he or she is spiritually united to God in good fellowship with God and yet taking part in every kind of sexual impurity? Just ask yourself that. How can people who claim to be Christian who, as the Corinthians did, claim to be very spiritually, spiritual Christians, to be very spiritually people who love God and love the gospel. How can they do that and yet shamelessly convince themselves that all kinds of sexual perversions are fine with their confession of Christ? How can we do that? How can we confess Christ, worship Him, read our Bibles, 
and yet involve our bodies, our eyes, our hearts, our parts, and all kinds of sexual morality. How can those things coincide? Well, there's, there's two ways that that happens. One is with an unbiblical understanding of grace. That's one way. Where we cheapen grace. Paul gets at this in Romans 6, where we continue to sin because we know God is gracious and will forgive us. We think, we think grace means freedom to sin. We think grace is God's cuddly kindness towards us, even though we continue on in all kinds of disgusting sexual perversions. perversions. We lie about grace. We cheapen it. We sing songs of no condemnation. I am no, not condemned. I am not condemned as we look at all kinds of heinous pornographic material on our screens. We lie about grace. We lie about forgiveness. We think forgiveness extends to those who continue on in sin. And we refuse to believe the truth that we saw last week that do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Those who continue on in sexual morality and are idolaters and adulterers or uh, effeminate or practice homosexuality or thieves or greedy or drunkards or revilers or swindles will inherit the kingdom of God. And we cheapen grace and we say exactly the opposite. And pastors preach it. Right? We say exactly the opposite of that. We say, do not be deceived. Those who continue on in unrighteousness are loved by God and are children of God and will receive the kingdom of God. We cheapen grace. That's one way that we do this. The second way we do this is by denying the importance of physical bodily realities. We divide ourselves. We say, spiritually, I worship God. I read my Bible with my spirit. I worship God in my spirit. It really doesn't matter what I do with my body. We have this dual understanding. This was the Greek understanding of us. It doesn't matter what you do with your body. That's going to perish. It's going to die anyways. It just matters if your heart loves God. And both of those are wrong. We cannot cheapen grace. The Bible says that to do so is a self-deception. That's what Paul's getting at in these verses. Do not be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Don't deceive yourselves by applying God's grace to ongoing unrepentant sin. That's a self-deception that will lead you to hell. Don't do that. And your body matters to the Lord. Your body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. Now look at how Paul relates our bodies to each, a relation with each member of the Trinity. It's glorious in these verses. In verse uh, 13, your body is meant for the Lord. Here, I take that to be God the Father. He 
cares about your body. He gave you this body. He has redeemed your heart, soul, mind, and body for himself. Your body is in vital relationship, just like your spirit, with the Lord. Verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? This is staggering. Your bodies, right? Your physical flesh and body, flesh and bones, your bodies are somehow mysteriously members of Christ. Verse 19. Do you not know your body, your body, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you. Now that verse is widely misused, especially in regards to the food thing and exercise. The context here of your body's devil of the Holy Spirit has nothing to do with food and exercise. Please stop using that verse to talk about the need to eat better and exercise more. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with how you use your body in the bedroom. It has to do with the reality that you and I, in Christ, are united to God. Why would you ever unite your body then to something immoral that God hates? So Paul is here showing the vital relationship that we have to God as Father, God as Son, God as Spirit in every way. This body is the Lord's. This body is a member of Christ. This body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Why would we ever indulge in sexual morality with this body that is so united to God? This is what makes sexual morality in a marriage so devastating. In Genesis chapter 2, we read that when one man and one woman come together, they become one Flesh. Not, not one soul. Not one spirit. One body. One flesh. They're one. And when one husband or one wife takes their body and unites it physically with another in adultery, that is so crazy destructive because of the union God has worked, what God has joined. And now Paul is taking that same kind of truth, relating it to our relationship with the Lord of how union, I'm watching union are the Lord and saying, why would you who are so united to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit take your body and unite it in sexual immorality in any way? You see all the questions here. Do you not know? Verse 16. How could you who are joined to the Lord be joined to the prostitute become one with her? Even more strike. I don't know about more striking. Look at verse 14. So verse 13, your body is for the Lord and the Lord for the body and God raised the Lord and will also raise you up. So here's the resurrection from the dead. 
the biblical teaching on resurrection from the dead is that we will be raised bodily. How do we know that? Well, who was the first person raised from the dead to immortal, indestructible life? Jesus Christ. And in the Gospels, they go to great lengths to show that he was raised with a physical body. You remember? Thomas Touch. <laughs> he, they, they notes that he sat down and ate, had a fish fry. He had a physical body. He was raised physically. It is an ancient Christian heresy to uh, deny bodily resurrection from the dead. Your body matters. Your body will be raised from the dead. This is why, brothers and sisters, if you talk to me at all about this, I think the Bible strongly encourages uh, burial, not cremation. That's for another topic, but it fits here. But you, you will be raised bodily from the dead. Okay? You'll be raised bodily from the dead. Now, almost everywhere in Scripture where the Bible talks about the resurrection of the dead, it is talked about to be a comfort and an encouragement to believers here and now. For instance, later on in Corinthians in chapter 15, Paul will go deeply into the teaching of the resurrection from the dead in order to encourage you to not lose heart but keep doing good ministry. It's an encouragement. In the letters to the Thessalonians, Paul writes to them about the bodily resurrection of the dead to comfort them because other believers have died and they mistakenly thought that they would never see them again. And so Paul tells them to grieve, but to grieve with hope because you'll be raised from the dead bodily and you'll see each other again. But here, Paul uses the teaching of resurrection from the dead as a warning. Not as a comfort, not as an encouragement, but as a warning. This body will be raised from the dead, so don't unite your body in sexual immorality. This body will one day stand before the Lord and you will give a, you will face judgment based on your deeds. You don't want to stand there having united yourself in adultery and fornications and prostitutions and pornography. You don't want those trailing in tow when you are giving an account, Jesus says, for every idle word that you've ever spoken. He wants you to picture Standing bodily before the Lord, giving an account, and He doesn't, He wants you to see that so that you don't, right now, in the here and now, with your body, use your body for sexual immorality. That's what He's doing with that there. And then in verse 18. Sexual morality is unlike any other sin. Now, I know we as Christians often say things like, well, all sin is sin. Yes, that's true. It's true in the sense that every sin is worthy of eternal condemnation because it's a sin against a holy, eternal God. That's true. But not all sin is the same. Murder is deserving of a much more severe punishment than lying. And sexual morality here is said to be unlike any other sin. 
Every other sin, see, he's got two categories here. He's got every other sin and the sin of sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Sexual immorality is a unique sin among all other sin. That is, if you lie, that sin is taking place out there. But when you're involved in sexual immorality, it is taking place you. It is, a, it is, a, it is, a, it is against your own very body. This is why sexual sin carries so much more guilt and shame. And you know it does. This is why sexual sin messes you with you to the depths of your soul unlike any other sin. That, that's true. That's what Paul's getting at here. And that's why we should do one thing with sexual morality. What should we do with it? Flee! No other sin in the Bible does it say that. Flee sexual immorality. Don't go toe-to-toe with it. Don't remain in the temptation. Run! Joseph, there it is. Joseph and Potiphar's wife. This very attractive woman was trying to seduce him day after day. And in one instance, when they were alone in the house, he ran. He didn't care what lies were told about him. He would not dishonor his Lord nor Potiphar. And so he fled. You and I here think we're better than we are. You have convinced yourself that you can stand up to sexual temptation. You have convinced yourself that you're more spiritual than Joseph. You have convinced yourself that when you're on the computer and the first temptation comes to start looking, that you can fight it. You have convinced yourself that it's okay to meet with somebody of the opposite sex in a private meeting, even though you know what your heart wants. And you can just keep doing that because you won't do it. You think you can fight it. You think you're strong enough. You're lying to yourself. We are to flee sexual immorality. When you're tempted in the workplace, and you are, do not lie to yourself. When you as a man have an attractive young lady over to babysit, and somebody suggests that you give her a ride home, you know what's going through your mind. Don't lie to yourself. 
pastors and elders, when we are counseling women, and we will refuse to do so except with other people in the building and our doors open, that's because we know what's in our hearts. We are to flee sexual morality. So in conclusion, your body matters. God has created it for himself. Your body will be raised up as the Lord Jesus Christ was. Your body is a member of Christ, and so you are joined to the Lord. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And one part of your body, the stomach, was made for food. So eat food, drink food, and enjoy it. But where it's a matter of life for somebody, don't abuse it. Where it's controlling you, repent and take steps to no longer be enslaved. And the rest of your body, because of our vital connection to the Lord, because of the resurrection of the body, standing before God, we were bought with a price, and so we, our bodies are for one thing, brothers and sisters. Verse 20. Here's the conclusion. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God. He doesn't end there though, does he? He doesn't just say, so glorify God. What does he say? So glorify God in your body. In your body. This body was made for one thing. To honor and glorify God in it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, would you cause us to be a people who live bodily to glorify you. God, I pray that you would give us strength to deal with our sin in this issue, to confess them, to get help in them, and that we would resolve by your grace, by your spirit, to live bodily for your glory. And so, God, please help us now. In Jesus' name, amen.